fly tipping. My vicinity affords many good walks, and though for so many years I've walked almost every day, and sometimes for several days together, I have not yet exhausted them. An absolutely new prospect is a great happiness, and I can still get this any afternoon. Henry David Thoreau. After the uplifting experience of my first grid squares open spaces, my heart sank a little upon arriving in my second square a week later. I found a boarded up, closed down pub with weeds pushing through the cracks in the puddled car park. A soggy planning application notice on the security fence outlined plans to demolish the pub and build six houses, community engagement, and rank as Britain's third most popular tourist activity. Yet they are in seemingly terminal decline. This leads to a loss in community fellowship, a sense of belonging that I had not yet found while living in this area, whether down the pub or up the hills. I like pubs in the way that I appreciate churches, not bound to the religion espoused, but enjoying the link to the past, the reassurance of the familiar and the welcoming open doors. I thought of the generations of memories from evenings spent in the anchor and hope that now awaited demolition along with the building. Its name derived from the letter to the Hebrews in the Bible. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope. Pub names often give clues to their ages. For example, after Henry VIII's Reformation, many pubs hastily switched from being the Pope's head to the King's head. Dozens of pubs are closing down every week. At this rate, the esteemed British hostelry will be extinct by the 2040s, along with the Sumatran orangutan, Amur leopard, black rhino, hawksbill sea turtle, sunder tiger and cross-river gorilla. The Covid pandemic sped up the pub closures, which is ironic given that the massive number of pubs in Britain may be connected to the 14th century plague. So many people died that the survivors found themselves in an emptier land with higher wages and a greater inclination to have fun. Leaving the abandoned pub behind, I headed off in search of cheerier discoveries. After last week's parking disaster, I had remembered that bikes nearly always trump cars and so cycled to today's square, as I would do to almost every other square in the year. Sometimes I would then pedal around the squares, other times I locked up my bike and walked. On this occasion, I rode down a single track lane, which was shining from overnight rain as it wound between tight hedgerows. I turned onto a muddy track through a birch wood towards an old gamekeeper's cottage. The thinning leaves were yellowing as winter clamped down. A sign cautioned vehicles to proceed slowly. I didn't seem to be struggling to do that this morning, I was pleased to note. I travelled about 400 metres in an hour as I kept stopping to look at stuff. A channel of trampled grass on the verge caught my eye. I followed it up to a badger set where five large holes had been dug into the sticky earth. Badgers are big, handsome and abundant creatures, but very elusive. One dark night last summer, I almost trod on a badger while out running in the woods. It scared the life out of both of us. Later that same week, I cycled straight over a fox at midnight. Thump, thump, went the wheels. 
the fox fled, so hopefully it was okay. And then the very next night, a gigantic scratchy stag beetle landed on my arm while I was out running and I leapt out of my skin for a third time. Who needs the Serengeti when you've got the rural urban fringe to explore? The British badger is a different species from the American badger and from Africa's honey badger, which is more weasel than badger. A quarter of Europe's badgers live in Britain, where they exist uneasily alongside farms, owing to the risk of them transmitting tuberculosis to cows. Badgers live in sets made up of interlinking tunnels, with tons of soil excavated to create dozens of entrance holes and long runs as deep as four metres underground. These complicated structures include ventilation shafts, nurseries, latrines and sleeping chambers. Fresh air circulates as the entrances are higher, allowing stale air to pass out as if through a chimney. Sets are often dug and enlarged by successive generations for a century or more. I peered down the hole with fascination. The night before, I'd finished reading The Wooden Horse, an escape story from the Second World War. Two prisoners of war were contemplating the difficulties of conventional escape tunnels that began inside a hut, beneath a desk, in the showers, under a cooking stove, and which then ran all the way underground beyond the camp's perimeter. The sheer length of the project, in both distance and time, usually gave the German guards too many opportunities to discover the mischief. What if they started their tunnel near the perimeter fence instead? It was a ludicrous idea, but many of life's wonderful projects arise from asking what if and then mulling over madcap possibilities. The concept that came to Eric Williams and Michael Codner was audacious, with pleasing echoes of Odysseus and his Trojan horse stunt. They placed a gymnastics horse in the exercise yard out by the camp fence. While volunteers practice vaulting for hour after hour, a tunneler concealed inside the horse began digging an escape tunnel, concealing it at the end of each day with a sand-covered trapdoor. The conscientious gymnasts tidied away the horse each evening, carrying it back to their hut with a digger and bags of excavated soil hidden inside. The gymnasts returned to the same spot day after day, showing admirable dedication to their new hobby, while their friend laboured and sweated underground. A fellow prisoner was sure the plan was crackers, declaring, I give it a couple of days. But the men persevered and a small, repeated activity slowly bloomed into something significant. Looking at the entrance to the badger set, I tried to imagine myself in an underground space like that every day for three months, using bowls for shovels, digging by candlelight, struggling for breath in a dark 75 centimetre diameter shaft. The prospect was terrifying, claustrophobia inducing, and quite mad. Not only that, but once the escapees completed the 30-metre tunnel and broke out, they still had to cross 150 miles of enemy territory in homemade disguises without being able to speak German and then sneak onto a ship to Sweden. The convoluted artifice of modern adventures would seem risable to those bold, courageous men.
As I mulled over the change in direction of my adventures, I was fascinated by the adventurous spirit and focused purpose of those prisoners of war set on escape and freedom. I was intrigued as to how that generation managed to return to normal life after their heightened experiences of war. Perhaps because the excitement had been so extreme, greater than any mere expedition, they felt satiated and eager to settle down, rather than left with unfinished business and an uneasy sense that a single map may never be enough. I was maybe taking the slow sign too literally today, for I'd still barely made it down one flank of the grid square and it was almost lunchtime. I rode through a coppice glowing with golden sunshine back to the road. That the trees had been coppiced told me they were hornbeam, not beech, for beech is rarely coppiced because of its dense canopy. I often muddle up the two trees, though I ought not to because beech has glossy leaves with small teeth, while hornbeam's leaves are rougher and their serrations alternate between large and small teeth. The only house along the lane was built with brick, interspersed with decorative flint motifs. Until bricks became cheap a century or two ago, most homes and churches in this area were built with flint. It's found as rounded nodules across chalk landscapes, for it originated from sponges in Cretaceous seas millions of years ago. The sponges extracted silica from the seawater for their skeletons, and when they decomposed, the silica accumulated on the seabed and in the burrows of urchins and worms. Flint's nodular shapes often reflect the shapes of the burrows it formed in so long ago. I took a footpath behind the house and pushed my bike across muddy, undulating fields, past cross-country horse jumps, past a pair of dog-walking mums in wellies and sunglasses, sipping from thermos mugs and discussing their children's teacher. An unseen man beyond the hedge sneezed and I called out, Bless you! This was countryside put to use, for work, for living, for strolling. It was different from last week's deserted marsh, which I preferred even though this landscape was more traditionally beautiful. This project was already beginning to challenge my assumptions of what was beautiful or natural in the landscape. On I went, past a plastic lid in the mud with strawberries and cream, milk, written on it in marker pen, past blooms of yellow hawkweed, which Pliny, the Roman author, naturalist and philosopher, believed hawks ate to strengthen their eyesight, past holly saplings sheathed in plastic tubes, past wild bees buzzing from their nest in a hole in an ash tree, past a plump little nuthatch pecking a branch as autumn leaves fell from the tree, slower than rain, past a snail that I rescued from a perilous road-crossing mission, past all these things that distracted me, drew me in and would send me investigating hither and thither across the internet when I got back home. My head was saying, hurry! My heart was asking, why should I? All these diversions guided me slowly towards the end of the grid square and a failed attempt to investigate a small pond marked on the map but sealed off by a high fence. 
I was about to give up and go home when piles of roadside rubbish caught my eye, dumped along the access road to a gypsy and traveller site. This was fly-tipping on an epic scale. Curiosity drew me along the lane, lined with heaps of litter and culminating in a smouldering mountain of soggy trash, maybe 20 metres long and a few metres high, including upturned sofas and builders' rubble sacks. Some of it had been partially burnt. Two workmen were surveying the mess. The fire brigade's just been to put it out, one told me. Now we've got to get rid of it all. Again. The council hired them, I learnt, to manage various notorious fly-tipping sites in the area. They had driven for an hour to come and sort out the eyesore. Two men with two flatbed trucks waiting for a third colleague to arrive with a digger to scoop up someone else's rubbish. It was an expensive morning for the local council. Britain spends more than £67 million a year cleaning up public land and prosecuting the few people they catch fly-tipping. Have you been here before? I asked. This is the third time we've cleared this site in the past two weeks, mate. It's getting silly. Sometimes they even dump a new load while we're still here clearing up the last lot. They honestly don't care. There's nothing I can do about it. Who does it? I asked. Who do you think? He replied, nodding his head up the road. Um, I've no idea, I said, but at least it keeps you in a busy job. Nah, but it's not right, is it? He said. A car pulled up alongside us and two young women from the council got out. They had a weary, not-this-again look on their faces. They began to confer with the workmen about how to deal with this latest episode. I wished them luck and carried on. Two traveller children from the community at the end of the lane approached me. The girl was thumbing through her phone, and the boy twirled a catapult around his finger. They looked to be about twelve. Did you make that? I asked nodding towards the boy's catapult. It had been carved from a fork stick, with the bark peeled off and the wood polished with varnish. Neatly whipped twine held the elastic in place. Yeah, I made it, he said, hesitantly, though with a hint of pride. I reached out my hand and he let me hold it. It's really good, I said. I like it. As luck would have it, I had a handful of clay catapult pellets in my pocket. I've got a catapult in my shed as a handy procrastination toy, and I offered them to him. He beamed and let me have a shot with his catapult. I took aim at a fly-tipped fridge and missed. Then the boy blasted some dumped flower pots. All this rubbish had its advantages. What are you doing with that big camera? The girl asked, looking up from her phone for the first time. I'm trying to see more of the countryside round here, like that pond over there, I said. It's private, she said. You'll get a 20 grand fine. That's a bit expensive for a photo of a pond, I replied. I think I'll just leave it. But that's only for kids, reassured the boy, to stop us going in there and messing about. You'll be all right. The pair were warming to me now, and they told me a way to sneak through the fence to the pond. They offered to take me to a nearby graveyard or show me a field of their ponies. They were proud of their home and wanted to show me around. But it didn't feel right to go off exploring with two children, so I demurred. Why aren't you in school? 
I asked, prompting only a shoulder shrug from the girl and a flurry of exploding flower pots from the boy. Can I have a try with your camera? He asked. I showed him how to use the viewfinder and zoom, then posed for him to take a couple of shots of me. If they run off with your camera, I'm not chasing them, shouted one workman, laughing. Don't worry, I banked myself over 50 metres, I replied, smiling at the boy. They were nice kids. But the woman from the council called me over and queried why I was taking photos. Be careful, she said, with concern in her voice. The people who live here won't like seeing you with a camera. The kids don't ever speak to me, they just tell me to F off. My time was up for the day, anyway. I needed to hurry home to collect my children from school. I shouldered my camera and turned to leave. Bye guys, I said to the kids. See you, they replied with a smile. And thanks for the catapult pellets. <laughs>